Welcome to Active Endeavors Podcast, a place where extraordinary people have the voice explore and express their creative and active pursuits on top of the rigors of their daily life. I am Linus. And I am Michelle. <laughs> I am so excited for today's episode because it is everything about chocolate and then some. Like, it's mind-blowing and I'm so excited to share Miss Valerie Beck's story with you all because she is just a ball of energy and her passion for chocolate just oozes and I think it will be mind-blowing for for a lot of our listeners. Exactly and who does not like chocolate? Well if you are a (laughs) chocolate lover this is the one for you. Who would have thought there would be so much enlightenment and so much energy and so much enthusiasm that goes into the world of Valerie Beck's passion for chocolate too. So So this podcast is actually really interesting because it's not just about chocolate. It's about how she pivoted from being a lawyer to starting her own business following her passion in chocolate. So Valerie will share a lot of like insight actually. So for those who are going through the growing pains of owning their business and whatnot. I think this is a very, very good podcast to listen to because she's just so inspiring and how she pivoted from complete different thing that she went to school for to something such as chocolate. So it'll be really, really fun to explore. I consider her one of the most chic, smartest person I ever know too. Literally what got me into knowing her is that she has the sweetest job in the world out there. So let's all welcome uh, Miss Valerie Beck on Active Endeavors podcast today. Take a listen. Hi, thank you so much, Linus, for having me. And I should have mentioned, you can call me Valerie, you can call me Chocolate Chick, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> Great. So pretty much we're going to start off with, give us that elevator pitch of who uh, Valerie Beck uh, is. Sure. Thank you so much again for the chance to connect and chat chocolate and active endeavors and all kinds of excitement. So I gave away the magic word chocolate. Yes. I <laughs> eat chocolate every day. Yes. It's health food. It's happy food. And when it is ethically sourced and honorably prepared, it is the food of the angels. So I've been a chocolate maniac all my life and it's been such a source of gratitude for me to be able to turn this love into various businesses over the years. So you might say I'm a chocolate services entrepreneur because I don't make chocolate. My businesses involve eating the chocolate and helping you eat the chocolate as well. Wow. (laughs) Right? So my current business is called Chocolate Uplift, and it is a distribution and consulting business for small batch craft chocolate makers. So people are familiar, of course, with craft beer, craft coffee. Well, craft chocolate is really about the same attitude and supply chain in terms of instead of just getting bulk cocoa beans that come from some very unsavory, shall we say, supply chains, what if we made chocolate with sustainable, organic, fair labor practice cocoa beans, and then instead of adding artificial ingredients and all kinds of nastiness that we find on grocery store shelves, and I'll name names, (laughs) what if instead of all of that, 
we kept it natural and pure so that we got the flavor of the cacao, the health benefits of the cacao, and just really let the cocoa bean tell its story. So what I do is distribute chocolate like this. And oh boy, I wish you were here. I wish everybody were here. I've got all kinds of that great chocolate bars with me to show. Yeah. Wow. All these beautiful bars I get to work with. Chocolate makers like these who make incredible. Oh, oh yeah, shine. Yeah, right. So good. And so I take chocolate bars like these and I get them onto shelves and I get them to retailers and restaurants and chefs and chocolate lovers. So that wonderful chocolate like this can get out into the world. And then that's the distribution side. And then the consulting side is working with chocolate makers to help their brands be even better whether that is updating their packaging or the verbiage on the packaging, whatever it is they need to run a strong, successful business, I get to help them do that. So consulting and distribution is what I do now. And for these types of chocolate brands, oh, updated packaging on Crow and Moss. Oh, I like that one. Isn't that pretty? New bars from Bixby chocolate. I just love, as you can tell, <laughs> working with people who are also passionate about what they're doing. And okay, final note for now, you want to know one of the best parts? You can guess it. I get to eat chocolate every day. Oh, I'm so jealous. <laughs> and I would do that anyway, as many of us do. But now I have to for professional reasons, right? <laughs> so if you ever need tasters, Yay! I think Linus and I would uh, <laughs> would volunteer. Fantastic! Come on over. <laughs> Teamwork and collaboration—that's what makes yeah, things successful. Yeah. <laughs> wow, there's so much to unravel there. I, that's amazing how you do what you do. I'm I'm not gonna lie; I'm very jealous, actually. Um, but tell me about how you got started. Like, is there Chocolate University? I know there isn't, but. Like, I would love to start chocolate? one. <laughs> yeah, I would probably go. <laughs> like, was chocolate your thing from, like, the get-go? Like, how did you get started? Right, right. You know, on the one hand, I had a pretty direct path. I've always loved chocolate. But on the other hand, that's sort of the spiritual path, you might say, knowing what's in your heart, knowing what's in your mind, and then just letting that be. But on the planet Earth path, I had a very twisty, turny route. I used to be a lawyer. Oh, okay. Now I'm happy. Yes. So it, all, <laughs> it all worked out in the end. But I was a very depressed, miserable, unhappy lawyer. The only oh, wow. thing that yeah helped keep me sane was that piece. And by piece, I mean <laughs> many pieces of chocolate. <laughs> But I knew I was obsessed with chocolate from one of my earliest memories. I remember being four years old and coming home from kindergarten and telling mom, mommy, guess what I got today because I would never drink my milk. You know, they try to make little kids drink milk around here and I just did not like it. I think I was born kind of vegan-ish, definitely vegetarian. Mm, okay. so I just didn't want to drink that. I didn't know why, but I just didn't want to drink it. So the teacher had a brainwave and gave me chocolate milk. <gasps> wow. I didn't know such a thing existed on this planet. Milk plus chocolate? Why had this been withheld from me the previous four years of my young life, I had asked myself. All your life at four years old. Exactly, all my life at four years old. So I told mommy, guess what? I had chocolate milk today and I don't want to ever drink regular milk again. 
she said, okay. <laughs> wow. So, right? Great mom. So she's always been supportive of just who each of her kids is and who we who we want to be and then what we want to do. So that was one of my first moments of chocolate obsession and I've really never stopped. <laughs> so was chocolate like the only fuel you relied on going through undergrad and Harvard? And then obviously you went through law school and Harvard too at the same time. So in normal cases, that's a lot of caffeine consumed. <laughs> you know, Linus, that is such a great question. And I would definitely leave the library to go get chocolate. I would go to the Harvard Coop. It's spelled like co-op, but yes. we have to be different at we call it Coop. <laughs> and I would buy these expensive, I didn't have the money for it, but I didn't want to eat, you know, what I didn't want to eat. I would buy these expensive chocolate bars and that would get me through. So I didn't have money then for things, you know, like what other people would call necessities. <laughs> oh. But to me, eating good chocolate was a necessity. Exactly. It, at and... some point it becomes relative, right? At, at this point, chocolate was really a necessity to fuel you for going to school at the same time so we call it a necessity that's exactly right i love it and you're so correct that it is subjective maybe somebody else wanted to drink that milk without chocolate i don't judge <laughs> <laughs> so when did when did it start when you transitioned from being lawyer to right. hey i want to like completely drop being a lawyer and follow my passion like it, it just seems like it was such a part of your life all throughout and like when did you make that decision and how did you make that decision that's kind of a scary decision to make you know like let's face it being a lawyer you're pretty well off you you know you have the nice income and whatnot I don't know about the stress but <laughs> you know like how did you transition from from that to that Right, and these are such great questions, Michelle, because in our world, society tries to teach us that this category of things is safe and this category of things is scary. But who made that up? I didn't make it up and you didn't make it up. And so I just really started to question where are these assumptions coming from? Because my reality was not matching up to those assumptions. So to answer the, the great question, I really, again, had sort of two paths, you might say. One being knowing that I had this idea when I was 19 years old to start my first chocolate-related business, but then on planet Earth, going through the jungles of time and space, really not taking concrete action, or let's say not taking sustained action until I was 35. Oh boy, we're talking age. We'll, we'll add it all up <laughs> later. <laughs> that was five years ago. <laughs> it was just yesterday, exactly. <laughs> well, I had the idea to start my first business when I was 19. So as you mentioned, Linus, I went to Harvard undergrad and law school. So while I was an undergrad, I did study abroad. Oh boy, I don't know if you've done that or people you know, but I found it so transformative to take my first trip overseas. So growing up in Chicago, we traveled a lot through the US and to Canada, but I had never been to Europe or to Asia or to Africa or to South America. And so deciding that I wanted to bust out of you know the, the continent and go see another one was just a really transformational experience for me. So I took a semester and I went from Harvard to the Sorbonne. <laughs> it was great. I loved being in Paris. I loved the history, the food culture, and really being able to explore and fall in love with that. For example, 
any culture that has chocolate for breakfast, count me in. Chocolate croissant, right? Pan au chocolat. What do you think of when you think of French food? Well, starting at breakfast at chocolate croissant is totally normal. And of course, our European friends got that idea from our South American friends who'd been having chocolate for millennia. So when I was studying abroad, you're so right. That chocolate was fuel to me. And I would go to different bakeries every day and explore the chocolate croissants and the pastries. And I would go to different chocolate shops and really start talking to the chocolatiers and the staff and the bakers and learning about, well, how do you make this? And how come French bonbons are square when Fannie Mae bonbons from Chicago were round? So learning, right? Just learning the different history and traditions and artisan craftsmanship, craftspeopleship that goes behind fine chocolate was something I really started to open my mind to. So I was always very studious and I would do all my studies and then I would walk around the city and explore. And I thought, hmm, if I love walking around Paris, eating all the chocolates and chocolate croissants and chocolate cakes and chocolate gelato that I can get my hands on, I bet other people would love it too. I said to my 19-year-old self, okay, we'll get into the mathematics of it all. This was 1989. This was before you were born. (laughs) (laughs) I know in the old days, a lady would never tell her age, but now, you know, we're loud and proud. And so... (laughs) So the point being too, that way back then there were not food tours. You could take architecture tours and Mm -hmm. visit, you know, historic churches and things of that nature. But there weren't really, you know, beer tours and pizza tours and movie tours and there were not chocolate tours. So I thought, what if I could combine the idea of an architectural tour and chocolate and put that together and make the world's first chocolate tour? Amazing. (laughs) It was fun to think about it. You know, to be honest, I didn't just think I got started. And I guess I'd always had entrepreneurship in me, but we didn't even really have that word back then. You know, we had business owners, but it wasn't presented right or really talked about as, you know, this sort of realm that that you would would look very closely at. So I didn't really have the word entrepreneurship, but I had the word, let's just get started. So I invited some friends who I had met over there, other people studying abroad in Paris. They were from Germany and Nicaragua and all over the world and French people, of course, too, and said, well, would you like to walk around Paris with me and eat a lot of chocolate? They said, Valerie, we don't really know what you're talking about, but you said chocolate. We're in. (laughs) You had me at chocolate. Right? Nature's perfect food, everybody's favorite flavor. Maybe not everybody's, but we all love it. Anyway, so the business got started, but not as a business. I didn't charge any money. I didn't, you know, really set it up. Yeah, I just started. And I think that that can, depending on the business, be a really great way to start or depending on the endeavor. We don't have to know everything before we begin. We don't have to have done a triathlon like you superstars (laughs) before we start. (laughs) Start taking the steps that we need to take, right? We must start somewhere. And so I simply began and people loved it and the chocolate shops loved it. And so after I had walked people around Paris a few times, I thought, hmm, you know, we've still got a lot more to explore here. But we could also go next door to Belgium Mm. and do the same thing. Yeah. So I started the first chocolate travel club that later became something I really built up. But I just said to those same groups of friends, 
okay, we've been having fun with chocolate in Paris, right? They said, right. I said, well, who wants to get on a train with me and go to Belgium and do the same thing? And two girls said, we do. <laughs> we did it. And gosh, it was so memorable and meaningful, not only to be able to explore these amazing cities and towns and chocolate shops of Belgium with great new international friends, but we celebrated my 20th birthday at one of these chocolate shops. Wow. I know. <laughs> it was so much fun. We went to Brussels, Bruges, Ghent, and also Antwerp. Um, mm -hmm. Antwerp is not known as such a chocolate city the way that some of the other towns are, but I was still studious and art history was one of my, actually, I think it was my favorite class at the Sorbonne. I loved them all, but the art history professor was so enthusiastic that she just just imparted that to us. You know what I mean? When somebody's that, you know, just into what they love, it's easy to to pick that up. And, and so she really transferred that to us. So just funny little short story. There. The um, topic of the class was 17th and 18th century French art history sounds pretty specific I know and that's okay and she would take us to the Louvre so we would get to go to where the actual paintings were hanging and learn about them so she did her job but then after every class she'd say oh it's all in French and she would say oh and she spoke kind of in this fun way and she would say we'll exit now together oh look she would say somehow we seem to be in the Rubens room the Salle de Rubens Rubens was her favorite painter. Mm, now, he right. was not French. He was not 17th or 18th century, but that didn't matter. That's who she loved. And she would say, well, since we're here, let's just stop and look at these paintings. <laughs> notice the pearl earring on this painting and notice how the figures are dancing in this one. And, and that enthusiasm of describing something to us in a way that we could catch that vision that always stayed with me. And I imparted some of that into the business when I finally started it for real years later. So being in France was so transformative for me in so many ways. And then final note on that, the reason we went to Antwerp, I told that professor what we were going to do. She said, oh, Valérie, you must also go to Antwerp because that's where this trio, this triptych of Rubens paintings hangs in this mm. church. And told me that when she was a student, she took the train from Paris to go see it and the church was closed, but she wouldn't take no for an answer. So she walked around until she found somebody in charge who opened up that church so that she could see those paintings. And you know, when my friends and I got to that church, the same thing happened to us. We couldn't get in. I thought, I'm not going to let, right? I'm not going to let Madame down. I am going to see these paintings. And we found someone who opened the church for us. And so, again, this idea of just sharing your passion so that others then pass it forward, that's always been a theme in my work and in my life. Yeah, so wow. it, it, it's funny how, you know, uh, now we mentioned entrepreneurial. You know, this has been the biggest, like, catchphrase these days, right? You, I don't right, think, right. I mean, I've always heard of like entrepreneurship at in school before, but it was never like, yeah. you know, a, a thing in the lexicon now that, you know, you have to be entrepreneurial. Right. But you know, you've been living this. Right, exactly. And, you know, after I studied in Paris and came back and, and graduated and did law school, I, I lived in Germany for a while and mm, I okay. practiced law there. Yeah. Oh boy. Being a vegetarian in Germany <sighs> in the nineties. <90s. laughs> oh, 
Oh, I don't mean to pick on our, our German friends. You meet nice people everywhere, and I met so many nice people there. But vegetarianism was seen as literally, are you sick? <laughs> That's what people oh, would really? ask me. Don't you want to eat this sausage breakfast, lunch, and dinner? That was just the culture there, and I did not adapt to it at all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but tying into entrepreneurship, I had an idea to start a business there too, but it didn't get off the ground because nobody understood the concept of mm. starting a business. And again, that's different now in Germany as it's different everywhere. But back then, as you're saying, Linus, it just wasn't in the lexicon. And in fact, to start a business, you needed, gosh, what did the, the exchange rate add up to it was something like let's just say fifty thousand dollars you needed wow. some amount of money that i did not have just sitting around my checking account <laughs> that i could start a business and so no matter what the business did whether you needed capital or not the rules were you just had to have that uh-huh. and so i wow you know this is not set up for what i want to do But again, that sort of obstacle stayed in my mind as how can I turn this into a positive? And one of the things I was very grateful for when I came back to the U.S. was that here you can start a business without any money. Mm. Again, it depends on the business. It depends on a lot of things. But you're not the law as you would have been in Germany to just get started. And so the way I finally did get started, oh boy. I was working long hours at a job I hated. And honestly, I, yeah, I've just come to believe that if you're doing something in your life that you hate, why? Oh. <laughs> why? Oh, yes. Is that why we were born? To be miserable? I don't believe that. Sometimes, yes, maybe we have to do something that's difficult and challenging and that we didn't think we would ever need to do. But if we know that it's for a goal, and we choose to do this thing toward the goal, that's different. So at least I I found, I believe. So for me, I was working at a big law firm in corporate finance and mergers and acquisitions. What that means is fine print. I was reading and writing fine print all day long. I know, I see a lot of things. The the stuff that 90% of the people don't even pay attention to. It felt so meaningless in the bigger picture of things. Now, it was very meaningful to the rich banks who were the clients, and it was my job to make them richer. But I thought, well, I got into law because I believe in justice. How I got into corporate finance is, again, this twisty-turny crazy story that I won't bore everybody with here, but it was never my personal goal to make rich banks richer. Again, if you or someone you love loves doing that, we'll talk after. I don't think it's a a terrible idea. (laughs) But I wasn't doing work that, for me, was in alignment with my values. And I found that the people that I worked with were bullying. For example, women were not paid the same as men. Lawyers doing the same work in the same year, same age. And this was a secret. And the way it came to light, by the way, don't you find it amazing that today we're living in such a time of things that were maybe hidden in the shadows to some people, but in plain view to other people. Now these things are coming to light where almost nobody can ignore the, the inequalities that our, our world is, is based on. 
So I got a personal taste of some of those inequalities at that law firm. One of the secretaries, and this was in the old days, admins like to be called secretaries, <laughs> accidentally, on purpose, accidentally, who knows, left self showing everybody's salaries by the copy machine. Oh dear. Wow. Uh-huh. Oh, dear. So Wait, was this person a female or a male? He was a female. Oh, that's a great question, Michelle. All the secretaries were female. This is another situation of, mm. I believe. Accidental. Uh-huh. Although she got fired for doing that. Mm, so yeah. she paid a very, a very high price. Wow. Um, so wages and salaries were secret. Suddenly they were not secret. And we could see that, wait a minute, that slacker guy down the hall who does less work than me is getting paid more than me. Wow. And we're at the same oh, level. Oh boy. So part of what upset me the most was that the partners, the you know, big wigs of the firm, didn't even want to discuss it. They simply would not talk about it. So sometimes, you know, I, I hear people ask, well, you know, how come people didn't speak up more about things involving Me Too or Black Lives Matter or whatever it was? Well, my answer, at least from my experience, is that when we tried to, people said, oh, you're making it up or yeah. we're not going to talk about that now. Yeah. Or, you know, the discourse just wasn't happening back then uh, uh, in some circles the way that it is now. So for me, that was one of my just final straws that, you know, I, I didn't like the work I was doing. I didn't find that it let me contribute the skills that I really did have. I'm not a fine print person. That's not, you know, what I would love to just get up and do every single day. And then to find out too, that the inequality was so pervasive. I thought, why am I giving my effort to make these rich banks richer, these rich partners richer, when I'm not seen as valued as much as somebody else might be. So I thought, hmm, you know, I've still got that chocolate tours idea. See, before you go there, <laughs> see, yeah. this is the reason why I really wanted you and Michelle to talk because you kind of in a different like road took a similar path. Very okay. parallel, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, 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 very I parallel. agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I want to know is how long, like, how many years did it take you? Because um, what Linus said, actually, in a to make a very, very long story short, oh, I went to okay. school for pharmacy. Okay, so, yeah. yeah, at UIC, and I practiced for ten years, balanced photography and pharmacy, mm-hmm. juggling both, <laughs> and then yeah, I just. Well, one, like I, it was my main reason was for my daughter who's special needs. Like I wanted to stay home with her more. But in, on another note, which kind of triggered like some memories with me personally as a pharmacist, like I it was I loved it. I loved working with the elderly. But at the same time, like I felt like the big box pharmacy companies, not to men- I don't want to mention names, but like they just didn't look at us as pharmacists. Like we just kept filling scripts and, you know, it just became like very robotic. Yes. So it wasn't, it wasn't as I thought it would be after graduating. So yeah, like I, I love helping people. I love people. So Mm-hmm. Yeah, I went that 180. Mm-hmm. So how long, yes. what I'm curious about is how long did you practice and mm-hmm. what made you like take that leap of faith? Yes. Oh my goodness, Michelle, I love your story. I want to hear your <laughs> podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, you, you said a, a word that really resonated with me as well, robotic. And I remember thinking, you know, couldn't they 
be happier, these people running the law firm and capitalism, if they just had a bunch of robots. And this idea that they wanted us to do the same thing the same way at the same time all the time, never get tired, never need to sleep, never need to eat. It was like we were being roboticized. Oh, and I just had such a revulsion to that, such a rebellion against that. A, a quick example, and we'll, I'll get back on, on the, the track, but, you know, I, I was a young lawyer and I needed to have my wisdom teeth out. And it got so bad that every time I would chew, I would lacerate the inside of oh. my mouth. It was like, oh. Oh, it was so much pain. But I was so busy at this law firm that I never seemed to be able to schedule time. And finally, I said to the partner, because we've been having this discussion, and I realized, why am I letting this sorry, old white man, be in charge of my physical health. I make decisions about my health, not anybody outside of me. I believe in body autonomy. This is my belief, and I'm going to live that belief. And I finally told the partner who was was running this, this big deal that I was on, you know, I simply need to have this done. And whatever it takes to to, you know, have me catch up on work when I get back, that's fine but my health has to be a priority or I can't do any work anyway. So Mm -hmm. I'm scheduling this and I'm going to have it done. And this created so much ill will and fracas and chaos somehow at the firm, not because I missed any, right, not because I missed any deadlines or work, I didn't, but because I was choosing how to schedule my own life. I was choosing to put my health over work. Oh, and so that was another straw, you might say, maybe not the last one, although it should have been possibly and could have been, but incidents like that kept stacking up, kept stacking up, kept stacking up. And so to answer your direct question, Michelle, I practiced law for five years. I'm so just cheering for you that you hung into a career for 10 years. (laughs) (laughs) It was long. (laughs) It's a long time. Sometimes I tell people that, yes, it was five years. It felt like dog years, so it felt like 35 years. (laughs) Years. <laughs> you have to remember the amount of hours you put in on a job like that. Yes. Over the week. Good point. It, Good point. It wasn't a yeah. It wasn't a nine to five. It yeah. was a no nine to hours. nine. <laughs> exactly. It was like nine a.m. to nine a.m. the next day. <laughs> oh gosh. Seven days wow. a week. No. It was intense. Um, And again, my goodness, for those who are in intense careers like that, that they love and they feel they're contributing, fantastic. But for those like you and me who were in that kind of career and the negatives just really outweighed any positives Mm -hmm. for us for making a change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I'm not going to lie. It was a very, very major decision. And it took me, I think, a long time to decide that, to take that leap of faith. That's okay. um, That's good. Yeah, like, but just, I guess, following your intuition and just going with, you know, what you love to do is is key. Again, you said a magic word, intuition. When did that stop being valued in our society? Was it ever valued in our society? We have so much, right? We have so much wisdom inside of us, whether it's put there by God or the universe or experience or whatever anybody's belief system is, it's in there. (laughs) And we have such a tendency sometimes, I think, in this world to sort of ignore that and listen more to something outside of us. 
I can tell you, at least for me, when I've done that, it's led me down an unhappy path. And when I've listened to the intuition inside me, it's led me down a happy path. So I love that intuition is making a comeback. Yeah, so did that <laughs> intuition kind of led you to that chocolate tour path again? Is that how yes. it pretty much happened? <laughs> That's right. And in fact, you know, you might say, Linus, that chocolate tour idea itself was an intuition. Mm, okay. I don't really feel like I invented it. Yeah, I, I feel like it chose me. The idea just came into my head or emerged out of my heart or however we want to look at it. But it wasn't an analytical process of, okay, for maximum elevation of capitalism, <laughs> of this, I didn't run any numbers. <laughs> there, were, there were no numbers being run. <laughs> <laughs> you build all of that into a business later, of course, if you need to and choose to. But the idea didn't come about in, in any sort of, of rational, analytical way. Um, it came about through that spark of intuition, yeah. And then it came back to me in a spark of intuition because there I was, miserable at the law firm, munching on chocolate to help keep me <laughs> sane and and alive. And I thought, you know... What used to make me happy before I got so sad? Chocolate. Oh. How did you get into that like actual path, and how did you eventually start yeah. the chocolate tour company that eventually started here in Chicago that got so big at oh, one point in time? You. Yeah, you know, again, great question. I decided that I was going to start the same way I had started at age nineteen. Mm, I okay. simply got a bunch of friends together and I said, hey, would you like to walk around Chicago with me and visit a bunch of chocolate shops and bakeries and eat all the chocolate that we can get our hands on? They said, yes, we would. <laughs> <laughs> so now the chocolate shops already knew me because I was a frequent customer. <laughs> Whenever I could sneak out of the law firm, I would run to a chocolate shop and again, chat with the owners, learn about the processes go into the kitchens when they would let me and, you know, see what's going on. Transparency was always part of the tours from the beginning. Mm. And this has also, you know, started to emerge more and more in our previously secretive society, hasn't it? What was in the dark is now in the light. So I simply brought a group of friends around to my favorite chocolate shops and bakeries. <laughs> I'm giggling because I didn't tell the owners we were coming. Later we built all of that in. I just showed up and they said, oh, Valerie, good to see you and your six friends. What's going on? <laughs> and I said, oh, you know, I've had this idea to start chocolate tours and we're doing it. And they said, wow, cool. What does that mean? It sounds great. Neat. And so we sort of just started setting it up where the stores would give really special attention to our groups, sharing samples that were specialties of the house that maybe wouldn't be sampled to other customers, but just really creating an experience that you could only get on the chocolate tour. And by doing that first tour, I noticed as well that other people who were in the stores, not on the tours, were watching. They're like, ooh. Mm. What are they, what are they doing? Truffles over there. Yeah, <laughs> we'd like a champagne truffle. And so I had business cards printed up, not because I was thinking, you know, of this corporate approach, but so that I could give them out to other people on the tours and say, oh, you know, we're doing a private chocolate tour. If you want to take one, here's my makeshift 2005 website <laughs> that looks about as bad as you would imagine I would do a 2005 website um, and, and you can find out more or give me a call 
or whatever. And so just by simply starting, that was how I started. I didn't have a business plan. Yeah. I didn't have any money. And I know that, yeah, you know, our society says lawyer and we think a lot of money. And there are lawyers who make a lot of money. There are also a lot of lawyers who don't make a lot of money. Yeah. Now, I did have a good salary, what most people would consider a good salary. It was a low six-figure salary as a young woman working in this big firm. So yeah, that's not something that, you know, everybody sort of jumps into that experience with your first job out of law school or college or grad school. I will tell you though, and not meaning to sound ungrateful, but it definitely seemed that half of that went to student loans and half of that went to taxes. Yeah. And then I had, you know, bus fare um, and a little bit of chocolate money. And and that was kind of that. So, you know, again, maybe I just wasn't managing my money right, but it didn't feel like I was living this happy lifestyle materially or spiritually or any sort of (laughs) way. So again, that was, that was just my um, experience. Maybe too, I, maybe I should have prioritized money more than I did, but I decided that if I couldn't make money doing something that I really loved, maybe I would have to try something else. Maybe, I don't know, but that I was going to go for it because I honestly felt that if I stayed in the law, I would die. I honestly oh. thought it was, ki- wow. I was, yeah, yeah. yeah I, was I think I could. Mm-hmm. I could definitely relate to that because like I felt like I was working really hard for the money that I was making. Like yeah. Yeah. it was it was comfortable. It was right. Yeah. Out of your was, lifespan. <laughs> yeah. Like it was it was not gonna lie, it was comfortable and it was very scary to leave. But at the same time, like when I left, I felt like a whole weight yeah. off my shoulder, you know? But I knew I had to work maybe three times as hard, but it was it was at least um, moving forward to something that I loved to do. So it wasn't really work for me, you know? And yeah. it was exploring what I wanted to do. Yeah, absolutely. That's why we're so, here. That's why mm-hmm. we're here on planet Earth. Maybe, right? Who knows? Maybe. <laughs> but it doesn't seem like it's to be, you know, punished in an environment you hate. Um, maybe it's to feel great in an environment you love. That seems at least closer to the truth of, of existence. But um, yeah, and again, you know, you've, you've said such magic words that the the uh, feeling of scariness of, mm-hmm. of taking a step, I, I wonder if that's something that if you knew then what you know now, would it have still been as scary? Maybe, I, I don't know. True, true. Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, probably not as scary because you know what's on the other side. <laughs> but yeah, yeah like I, I have no regrets at all. Yeah, know? that's awesome. That's yeah. awesome. <laughs> Sometimes I think, you know, where's the, and I'm not criticizing any one of us. We all have, have our journeys um, and, and a very similar one in, in some sense because we're all in this matrix or this world together. But where do we teach courage in our world? Where do we right, teach, right. right? Just having the bravery to be able to say, I want to try this, or I want to be that, mm-hmm. or I want to do this. And again, I'm not criticizing us. I think that this sort of, I don't know, imposition of fear is, is put upon us, maybe so that we stay as the cogs in the machine, you know, in the jobs that are, mm-hmm. are running. But is that our true self to, to feel that being ourself is scary? I guess that's what I'm getting at. Yeah. We're sort of taught, yeah, taught that it's scary. But then when we make it to the other side, we maybe rethink that or, or re-evaluate. 
Mm-hmm. I don't know, just an interesting. But that's when you want to like share to the world, like, okay, if I could do it, you could do it too. Like, like I'm, you know, you just want to share that part. So that's so true. Yeah. And you know, if it's any consolation to to some people, I ended up making a lot more money in the chocolate tours than I ever made as a lawyer. Yeah, that was the <laughs> other thing amazing. I was going to ask. Like, obviously, this was like mid two thousands, and I think I moved here to the U.S. in two thousand seven. I honestly, hey, yeah. I actually was not aware of any chocolate tours. The food tours were always like in existence. I've known of that. The chocolate tours, like something no, they so came after different. me. I'm they like, came after me. Though. Ah. <laughs> so how, yeah. how big did? And that's okay. I'm glad they did it. It built a whole category, which is awesome. Yeah. So how big did the business get altogether from like that little tiny yeah. idea you had? Exactly, and I'll just give the spoiler now too. Before Amazon and Groupon wiped it all out, and I lost oh. everything, so ooh, the ups and downs and vicissitudes oh. of life. But yeah, by um, I would say by 2012, we had 50 employees in four cities, mm. and so what started with just me and a dream really was something that was able to grow into. A true collaborative effort, where we always stayed on that vision of giving people an uplifting experience through chocolate. Today, the business is called Chocolate Uplift, but the mission was always uplift through chocolate. So today's business is just simply another approach of that same ethos of letting people feel uplifted through chocolate. So, is it about the chocolate or is it about the people? Well, it's about both, but chocolate is for the people. Chocolate is a vehicle. For uplifting people all along the supply chain. So, in any case, in Chicago, where I started, as, as you know, and as we've talked about, we first two. I added one tour that was my first hire because it got to be that we had more tours than I could do as one person. I thought, well, this is a good problem to have. Well, Let's problem, get another、yeah. person. Exactly, definitely. And so, started adding tour guides, and then realizing, okay. I know that I'm not the fine print type. I know that I'm not the administrative, operational type. I'm more the strategic relationship type. And so when the operations got just too complicated for me to keep track of, wait, who's coming on what tour when? Because people could sign up, and、yes. I'm trying to keep track of that and not always doing a good job. That sounds very basic for some, but it seemed quite complicated <laughs> to me. So I thought, okay, what we need now is a manager. Somebody whose forte is actually knowing how to organize the the details of of who's coming when, calling the chocolate shops to let them know. Okay, we've got fifteen people on the twelve forty five tour, and we've got two groups of ten each on the three forty five tour, and sending out emails, updates, and just handling the operations of managing the tour. So hired a manager. So the business really grew organically. I guess is what I'm trying to say. As we had a need, I brought in people who had the skills and the motivation to fill that need, and I always hired for culture. Definitely, people have to have the skills, or you teach them the skills, or whatever. Of course, you know that's like food should taste good. Yeah, of course, we want it to taste sort of baseline. We want people to have the skills or gain the skills that they're going to need to to use in their work, right? But Beyond food tasting good or just having skills, what's that magic something? Maybe food. We also want to know where did it come from and was it grown in a sustainable way? Were the people who trucked the food and grew the food and handled the food along the supply chain and prepped the food in the kitchen were they all treated in a fair 
an honorable way. So there's sort of the food and then there's the meta <laughs> food. Yeah. And so similarly for hiring, I always focused on, of course, I don't want to hire somebody who's as bad as operations. I shouldn't say bad, but it's not our preference uh, to do operations like me. I want to hire somebody for operations who it is their preference to do operations. They're just wishing they had a bunch <laughs> of Excel sheets to you know, fill in all the boxes on. They love that. And that's awesome. We need all kinds of skills. But then beyond that, was I going to hire somebody who was mean or a bully or didn't like chocolate? No, uh, not, not me. I learned how all that worked at the law firm, right? I took a lot of lessons there from what not to do. Maybe experience is never wasted if we take the lesson like that from it, I suppose. So Agree. I, yeah. yep, I learned a lot of what to do, worked with very smart people. I don't mean to be negative where it's not due, but I also learned a lot of what not to do, how to build a, a team that would be psychologically dysfunctional. I definitely saw that um, at uh, different jobs and didn't want to repeat that. So I hired for culture. People who were enthusiastic, people who loved people, people who loved chocolate, people who believed in equality, people who, oh my goodness, do you want to know one of the most radical things I did as I started hiring and building the team? Boy. I paid men and women the same. Yeah. <gasps> yes. <laughs> what? <laughs> Does that put me into like 10% of businesses, 20%? I don't know, but it was not 100%. That's for sure. Still isn't. Okay, yes, yes. something else radical. I had team members of all different tones of melanin. <laughs> all paid the same. Team members who came from all different countries and ethnicities paid the same. Team members who may have had different gender orientations all paid the same and it was transparent. So yeah. you knew that if you were a tour guide, you're making this much. If you're a senior tour guide that anybody could do the, the steps to move up to, you're making this much. If you're mm -hmm. a manager, you're making this much. So there were no secrets. There were no, you know, favoritism or, or just sort of mysteries about, well, how did that person get that job? <laughs> no, we were just very transparent from the start because I saw what happened when we didn't have that transparency in my other jobs. Mm -hmm. And so now in this career, I wanted hopefully to give my team a chance to have the positive working experience in those ways that I had not had. <laughs> and so as we grew, we always stuck to that as our culture. And when it got to where, for example, maybe the Philadelphia tour or the Boston tour needed to hire new tour guides or a new assistant manager or a new admin, I couldn't personally be HR and the CEO and you know, doing all the things that I needed to do. So I made sure that my leadership team had those same values of hiring and promotion so that basically the business ultimately was able to even run without me. Mm. And that was an exciting step to take because mm -hmm. each business, you know, I couldn't be in all cities at all times. Everybody had to have those same values and then be able to make decisions from those values so that nobody ever had to call me or call their supervisor to make a decision. They could just say, what's the most uplifting thing to do for the customer in the situation or to do for our vendor in the situation? And then drawing on the team values be able to make that independent decision. So being able to grow a team of empowered individuals who could independently move the vision forward, that was something that I had wanted to do from the start. 
oh, and again, I just feel so grateful that I got to do that, that I got to have that experience, that I got to to spread that that vision outward. Isn't she amazing? That's only part one with Miss Valerie Beck. Stay tuned for part two next time so you don't miss out on the upcoming episodes. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And also you can sign up at our newsletter at activeendeavors.com so you don't miss on the next episode coming up. Thank you for listening to another episode of Active Endeavors Podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And don't forget to check out our website at activeendeavors.com. And please don't forget to rate us and hit that subscribe button. See you real soon.